0: Men. The preaching of God's word this afternoon is found in Second Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. Continue our series on conversion, though, uh, coming to the end in the next three to four sermons. We have before us this theme of a new guide. of course this passage is, particularly helpful to that end because it commends to us the Word of God. So here then, these few verses as Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 15-17. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now it's worth our momentary consideration of this to look beyond the chapter break because what's just been read sets up for an exhortation wherein Paul thus exhorts Timothy, verse 2 of chapter 4, preach the Word. And so though there is some correct understanding that when Paul says, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, it is a technical expression of the minister, yet it has consequential impact to the whole of the church because the Word which, as it were, matures the minister is to be the very same word that the minister proclaims to the people. And so, as we consider this, though there are particular uh, aspects related to the minister, it is nonetheless the Word of God that is to be held forth to the people for their conversion, instruction, and confirmation in the way of fellowship with God. Now, In this, our series on conversion, we've looked at a lot in this afternoon. We look at this guide that is to govern and direct those who are converted. Now, we need to acknowledge that God stands as the authority over the converted and unconverted together. That's why God shall judge the earth. Everyone, men and women, boys and girls, Muslims, atheists, Christians, All of these different categories, so far as we can uh, describe them, will be answerable to God. Why? Because He's their authority. This, of course, we see at creation when God stood over Adam and Eve, gave instruction and commandment, and yet, of course, the fall, as it were, was the wicked corruption of inverting that relationship where instead of hearkening to God's voice, Eve first listened to the serpent's voice and then, as it were, to her own desires, she took of the forbidden fruit and did eat and handed to her husband and he did eat, which pattern then, as it were, continued to all of their children. You and I today have, as it were, by nature this thought that I stand as supreme. I get to determine what I want to do and so on happens any time. Ask any minister and elder who's been involved in the same and any church member who has at all had some relationship with others. So soon as one comes under clear, scriptural discipline, the temptation is to say, well, what are you making yourself out to be? Are you saying I have to listen to you as if you're God? And the response, of course, of minister, elder, session, and so on is of course not. But we are holding forth to you God's Word. And then, of course, the response starts, well, that's your understanding, this is my understanding, and so on. Or, I don't see it that way, and whatever else. And really, when you press the matter, it becomes clear that what is at stake is not two different interpretations, but rather one's independence and autonomy not wanting to let go of sin. And so, all manner of Arguments and excuses come up. We saw that even in Matthew 11 of John the Baptist who was rather austere and uh, removed from many uh, indulgences. They said, look, he has a, a devil. And Christ who comes eating and drinking, they say, look, a drunkard. What's the point? They have their excuses. Why? Because they don't want to submit to the Word of God. But something happens in the converted one though imperfectly in this life, genuinely and with evidence, there is a changing back of that original standard where one who was opposed to God is by God's grace brought back under God. So Christ says, My sheep hear My voice and they keep My commandments. And so whereas the fall has perversely inverted the good order wherein life is found by our listening to God and fellowshipping with God and obeying God and trusting God. By God's grace, he renews a man to bring him again gladly, graciously under his authority wherein life and joy is found. There are, of course, those who would say, well, A strict consideration of God's Word is too stringent and suffocating. And Really, what is being expressed is this. It's suffocating to their lustful pleasures. The Word of God is no killjoy. The Word of God is nothing that removes true, rich experiences of joy. In fact, the Word is full of these things. So, for instance, the Scriptures give us evidence of this. The Word of God is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's not that the Word of God is bitter and makes us purse our lips and makes us us frown and so on. No, the converted one is seeing that the Word of God is sweet and is desired. It's better than gold, well-refined silver, and so on. It's, in other words, that it's in the heart that the problem lies. The heart desires chaff and waste and wretched refuse and calls it good. That's the unconverted. Where there's death and condemnation. So when you see sinners celebrating their sin, you should force yourself to see men and women celebrating their demise. Whereas the believer, even in their trials and sore difficulties, yet they hold forth and hold fast the Word of God. Why? Because they have found life by His Word. I cannot read Psalm 119 without seeing this most clearly. Now Paul's writing to Timothy and notice the text. He says, "...from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures." This should encourage covenant parents because here Paul is appealing to that labor that well preceded Paul's influence over Timothy, and goes back to a mother and a grandmother who taught Timothy the Scriptures. And so, here is great encouragement for us not to be witty and all of those clever tricks and so on, but to be faithful to teach our children the Scriptures. And Timothy experienced that, and by God's grace, he brought to, was brought to embrace the same. Notice further in that verse, these Scriptures are said to make uh, us able to make the wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, put this in historical context. Paul is writing to Timothy early on before the whole New Testament was written. But Timothy as a young man, 20-30 years old, would have preceded in his infancy, the vast majority, if not all, of the New Testament Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament from his youth, from his childhood. And what was the message of the Old Testament? What is the message of the Old Testament? It is the way of salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's astounding to us today to realize that when you read in the book of the Acts of the Apostles and other places as well, that the preaching of the Gospel is an appealing to the Old Testament and pointing out how Christ fulfills these things and how these things were foretold. You cannot read the Gospel of Matthew without seeing this constant weaving together of the passages of the Old Testament brought out in the life and ministry of Christ Jesus. It would be a good exercise. For you, not necessarily, uh, or not necessary, but nonetheless a good exercise, for you to try and formulate the telling of the gospel from the Old Testament alone. In other words, can you sit down with the Old Testament and lead someone through the understanding of their sin, of their answerable to God, of the judgment to come, of the need for salvation, of their own sinfulness? of the way of salvation by a mediator who is the Son of God, who is incarnate, who came according to His uh, promise, and so on. Now, obviously, we have the benefit of the New Testament which helps that process and gives us the facts and figures and the historical documented record of His doing these things. But Paul's point is this. The Old Testament is able to make us wise unto salvation... Which is by faith in the Messiah, Jesus. Notice verse 16, it bears the authority of the Scripture. So the Holy Scripture is now all Scripture, is given by inspiration of God. That expression, by or given by inspiration of God, can be literally translated God breathed. And so we have respiration, whereby we speak of breathing. You can see that root there in inspiration. It's the idea that He breathed into the Scriptures. The words of the Bible are His words. And you cannot speak without breathing. You have to allow breath to pass over your vocal cords and for your mouth and nasal passage and all of these things to work together to formulate the sound at measured increments and in certain ways, so that intelligible speech is communicated. And this is what's being said about the Bible. The Bible is God's Word. It's His revelation. His thoughts, His commandments, His promises communicated to us. That's what we have in the Bible. It's not man's Word. It's God's Word. And then verse 17 tells us of its sufficiency. That the man of God may be perfect or complete, matured, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In the Greek there's something of a build. May be perfect, we could translate it perfectly furnished. May be complete, completely furnished. He's not lacking anything that is needed for a life in service to God. The scripture stands sufficient. Now, brethren, all of this helps us to see that it is the Word of God which is the guide for the converted one. Whoever's converted is converted unto God. And if converted unto God, then it is he's to listen to God, believe what God says, obey what God says. And the Bible is that record and revelation of the will of God. Of God. Now this is no mere New Testament reading or, or teaching; it is throughout the Bible. We read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter four, and this theme was repeated again and again and again. Notice chapter four verse one: Therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that you may live and possess the Lord the land which the Lord your God. The Lord God of your fathers giveth you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, and at verse 32, something perhaps familiar with you. Whatsoever, What things soever I command you, observe to do it, Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. We have something uh, that we sometimes quote, though we uh, forget where it comes from on occasion. Isaiah, in chapter 8, and notice, for instance, at verse 20, "...to the law and to the testimony, if they," that is, self-proclaimed prophets, "...if they speak not according to this word," it is because there is no light in them. You think as well of the principle as stated in Matthew chapter 28 at the Great Commission. When Christ is sending forth His apostles to preach the Gospel to the nations, and He says, All power is Mine. All authority is Mine. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. What's the point? It is God's Word alone which is the ultimate authority and guide for the Christian. This does nothing to reduce or remove the fact that Christ, in accordance to His Word, has ordained those to serve as helps and under-shepherds and to direct us to a better understanding of the Word, it is though to acknowledge that neither they of the old or they of the new stand in in themselves as the ultimate guide. They were but vessels through which the Lord did provide His Word. And so this is a basic reminder And yet it is a needed reminder because it doesn't take long if you pay attention even to Christian culture for men to start justifying aberrations from God's Word by things other than God's Word. And so why do we have these holy days? Well, you know, the church thought it was wise to do so. It keeps it in mind and we can celebrate Christmas and celebrate Easter and do all these things because after all, These are good things to do. You bring up a question, where in God's Word does it command us to do that? Oh, well, it doesn't. Well, here's a problem. How are we supposed to bring that in as a religious observance if the only guide for faith and practice doesn't provide it to us? Someone says, well, you know, the Psalms have served the church well, but we think that we can sing songs that explicitly mention Christ which only goes to show forth ignorance because the Psalms are richly laden with explicit reference to Christ. But set that argument aside, and the thought goes forth, well, we can invent songs as long as they're orthodox, and we raise the question, where in the Bible is that permitted or commanded? And the answer, of course, is it's not. You see, the point is, this doctrine is far-reaching. And it is often with lip service honored, but with practices denied. The Scriptures are the only authoritative standard for our faith, for our doctrine, for our practice, for our worship, for our government, and so on. And Though it is sad that each of us must confess, that we, each of us, fail to a perfect obedience of the Scriptures. Yet it does not remove the fact that that is the standard for us. Brethren, we've touched on some things that are, of course, matters of controversy in the modern church. But we must quickly acknowledge that even those who would take a different view from us on those matters would admit that the Scriptures are the ultimate guide for the Christian. And this is our fundamental point. When one is converted, whereas they may be helped by commentators, whereas they may be helped by pastors, whereas they may be helped by books and sermons and so on, we need to keep it central in our minds. The thing that they need and that we need is the understanding of the Word of God. This is why Paul, as noted, will go on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this solemn charge is given to, to, to Timothy. Verse 1. Then verse 2, preach the Word in season, out of season. Why? Because that's what God's people need. Well, three things for us. Firstly, the Scriptures are this ultimate guide. Secondly, they are a saving guide And thirdly, they are a sufficient guide. First, we've touched on, but we'll quickly review, that the Scriptures are the ultimate guide for the converted. To state it in a different way, there's nothing else that is equal to or over the written Word of God. Sometimes we're ridiculed for being what's known as a confessing church. Not the Roman Catholic doctrine of confession unto a priest, but that we confess our faith. And so our church uh, upholds and advances the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they say, see, if you believe the Bible, you wouldn't have a confession of faith. And yet, our own confession of faith acknowledges that it's the Word of God itself which stands above every confession, every creed, every council. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the ultimate standard by which all doctrines, private revelations, ministries, and so on are to be judged. And the scriptures themselves commend this. Paul the Apostle goes and he preaches to the synagogues. And as he goes to Thessalonica and is chased away, he then heads to Berea and he's preaching Christ from the Bible. And they then search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And it's no wonder that by God's grace that many are brought to believe upon Christ. But think of what's taking place there in the book of Acts. Paul is an inspired apostle. Hand chosen. Ordained by Christ. And he preaches. And he doesn't say, no, no, no. Set your Bible aside and listen to me. They're commended. It's said that they were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What's the point? The Scriptures are to govern and guide the people. Why? It's the ultimate standard. When one is converted, the Scriptures increase above all others because that's where they stand. Notice our text. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God which, of course, as noted, means they are the very words of God. And so it's a frequent uh, expression in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. In other words, these words are His words. But that can be said of all Scripture. Now someone who thinks themselves clever might say, well, that may be true of the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Is the New Testament likewise the Scripture? It's not our point to go through and justify every book at this point, but notice as one illustration of this very point in the book of 2 Peter and chapter 3. The New Testament authors realized that Scripture was being provided to them. And so, notice, for instance, 2 Peter chapter 3. We have it said in verse 15 that we're to account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures unto their own destruction." Notice that Paul's writings are placed in the same category of the other Scriptures which to reject and refuse brings forth one's destruction. So Paul's and Peter's present day were bearing the authority of the Holy Scriptures. The word Scripture means writings. And so holy means that they aren't common writings. They are, of course, those which are set apart by God. But why is it that they're the ultimate guide? It's because they are from our ultimate authority, God Himself. They are His Word. Children, you might know this, of course. A brother or sister comes to you and says, you need to stop doing that. Get it together and stop. Knock it off and so on. They say, well, who are you to tell me this? And then you refer to your mom or dad. Well, mom or dad told me that you need to stop this. Or you might front-load it and say, Mom sent me to tell you you need to come upstairs now. Why do they start that way? Because they realize and anticipate, well, I'm just an equal. Maybe I'm younger and an inferior. But Mom is your authority and you need to do what Mom says. Well, this is what the Bible is. The Bible is the Word of God given us to instruct and guide and direct us. And that as the ultimate standard. As we note in John's Gospel, Christ says, My sheep hear My voice and they do what I command. It's His voice by His Word which we hear and which we obey. This should, of course, have an ultimate saturating of all of our thoughts and actions and behaviors because the Bible is that ultimate guide. But notice, secondly, it is a saving guide. And so in other words the Bible is not merely a book of morality of laws and expectations. It's unfortunate that many turn it into a the Bible says don't do this, the Bible says do that. Now the Bible does have don't do and do and to avoid those things is to refuse our ultimate standard which is of course to sin. But the Bible has something far superior than just common morality. So Paul says, notice verse 15, "...the Holy Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." The Bible alone has this ability. Now we don't mean that preachers can't preach the Bible and see sinners saved, or that a tract can't be written and passed out and be used to see sinners saved. We mean, though, that whether a mom telling a child, or a stranger telling a neighbor, or a random piece of literature picked up that's written by someone from today or yesterday, it doesn't matter, that if one has that and is brought to faith, it's because what was recorded on that tract or what was said by the mother is something that was revealed in the Scriptures. The message of the Bible is a message regarding salvation and such a message as the world cannot discover on its own natural ability. It is the Scriptures alone which are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice in Psalm 19, we have the testimony of what creation can do in verses 1 and following as it testifies to the world of the great glory of God and declares the glory of God and so on. But Notice in verse 7, it is the law of the Lord, the written Word of God that is perfect, converting the soul. Peter tells us, as we referred to this morning, there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. John, Jesus tells us in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Now, how do you learn about Jesus? Except by His Word. How do you know about Jesus except as His Word has told us? Someone says, well, a preacher told me. How did that preacher know? Uh, my mom told me. How did the mom know? There was the message of the Bible given us by those means. It is only the Bible which can tell us of the way of salvation because it is the Lord's record of the saving way of souls. Notice, it is then preeminently a revelation of salvation. Yes, it confirms and condemns us for our sins. Yes, it convicts us. Yes, it points out different structures and ways to set up the church and so on. But preeminently, all of this is testifying to us of salvation. Now think of that for a moment and realize the tactic of the enemy in undercutting this notion that the Bible is the ultimate guide. Why would Satan level such an attack against the authority, the inerrancy, the inspiration of God's Word? Because it's that Word which is the only way of sinners being saved from their sin. And if he can attack the foundation which would convey to us that knowledge and plant seeds of doubt and ridicule and refusal and rejection of God's Word, well, he secured his uh, slaves in their bondage. And so when you hear the culture around us saying, well, the Bible has errors. Well, the Bible is old and outdated. Well, the Bible... What you need to realize is really the battle's not ultimately about the Bible. The battle is about salvation. And so when PhDs and THMs stand up and they say, the Bible has many historical errors, but we can learn of its religion. Well, really what they're saying is we reject the Bible as inspired and authoritative and thus a word that you have to agree with. Which then necessarily means you don't have to receive its terms of salvation. The Bible is the authoritative, ultimate guide regarding salvation. And if men can undercut that, and if Satan is successful in the minds of children and men and women and colleges and seminaries and even churches in planting these doubts in their minds about the Scriptures, then it secures damnation because, well, I don't need to believe what the Bible says about salvation it is, of course, that often, as often is the case, that Satan is ten miles ahead of where the real debate is. So the same is in like morality issues, abortion. Really, the issue isn't just about abortion, the issue of homosexuality. The issue really isn't about homosexuality. There are uh, frequently matters far beyond those cultural issues, but we get sucked into thinking that's the battleground. Well, it may be where the great heat of the moment is, but it's often that there are massive things undercurrent that are at work in those moments. The same is true about the Bible. When it is that the Bible is rejected and refused and ridiculed, Satan's eye is not just on the Bible. It's on the souls then that will be guaranteed to be left in their sins. The Scriptures are able to make one wise into salvation. So soon as one comes and acknowledges this is God's Word, now it is that they realize they have to do with God's claim and the only way of seeing their souls saved. But Notice the message of this guide is a message not through self-righteousness, but rather through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And it's not just that it's able to make us wise unto justification, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, but the whole of all of salvation. So our justification is that whereby God declares us righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness unto us, received by faith alone. But another aspect of salvation is our sanctification, whereby we, through faith in Christ, derive from Him All of the graces and virtues as we by faith embrace His promises. And the Scriptures teach us that as well. Glorification on the last day will be because of faith in Christ Jesus. Perseverance through trials and deliverance therefrom will be through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible gives us all that is needed regarding Christ who is able to save us in all of these ways through faith In Him, it is a saving guide. It saves us from what we deserve in our sins. Notice then, thirdly, this ultimate and saving guide is likewise a completely sufficient guide. Sometimes it appears still today, but about 10 to 15 years ago, it was quite the movement in some so-called churches to put up a sign that had this picture of an ellipsis with a comma saying, God is still speaking. What's interesting is we believe the same. We believe that God is still speaking, but that He's speaking through the inspired Word of God written and scripturated, unchanging. It is inerrant and infallible. And he speaks to our generation by these words. But those so-called churches are the very churches today that fly the pride flag and other such abominable practices are done because their point in that movement was to say, well, the Bible's a helpful start, but we have more revelation from God today by which we can search the culture and search you know, psychological and so on studies and come to determine what is true and what's wrong. And so we can reject certain things as well those were short-sighted claims of Paul and of Peter and even of Jesus Christ or at least those who wrote about Jesus Christ. But what we know today as we stand in a better light is God is now showing us that those things which they forbid are actually permissible what is actually taking place is a revelation to us that they refuse the Bible's message. The Bible claims to be the authoritative, the inspired, the ultimate guide as God's very Word. And as God is eternal, wise, good, and true, and holy, so His Word is likewise. Well, notice the passage tells us that this is profitable, beneficial for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction. Those are different words addressing our behaviors for instruction or training in righteousness. And so it touches on what we believe, how we live, and how we're then to live. Notice verse 17 then concludes that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. Now children, bear with me for a moment. As you think on a matter, if your mom or someone baked a cake and it was brought to your house and you thought, oh, I'll get a piece of that. And then you go on and play and you come back and you can't find it. You ask, you know, where's the cake? And someone says, all of it's been eaten. You know exactly what that means. There's nothing left over. The whole thing is now gone. Now, why do we say that? Because notice here that it says, The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Every work that can be identified as good is commanded and instructed by the Bible. Whereas counsels can be helpful in wading through difficult matters, whereas counsel with elders can be helpful in working through applications, it's the Bible which stands able to address every aspect of righteousness. Not only all good works in a temporal time of Paul's day, but absolutely all Good works. Why is that so? Why do we emphasize that? Because notice again, look into chapter four, verse two: preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffering, long suffering and doctrine. For the time or the season will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. So on. Paul knew that times would change. He didn't say, therefore, adapt your message to the changing times. He said, when that time comes, you're still to preach the Word. When men flock unto the preaching of God's Word, you're not to say, well, how am I going to sustain this? How do I build a bigger building and continue to bring in the finances? Well, I'll have to sort of soften this and that and the other. And so I'm going to soften his word. No, preach the word in season. What about when people leave? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to change the emphases and you know, sort of conveniently look past some things that people are saying I'm leaving about? And Paul says, no, out of season, preach the word. What about when they're flocking unto others, false teachers? Can I sort of soften it then? Can I just sort of play along? And not really fully all-out compromise, but just a little bit. And Paul says, no, the time's coming when they're going to seek out people because they have itching ears. But he says, you're to preach the Word. Because what they're doing is they're turning away their ears from the truth. Do you hear that word? The Word is equal to truth. The Word of God is truth. To turn from His Word is to turn away from truth. So it is sufficient then, as the true and ultimate and saving standard, to guide us in all things. All divine doctrine that we require to know and believe unto salvation is here in God's Word. All holy practice, which is right and good for all those who would follow God, are here in God's Word. All gracious and provided uh, helps are here in God's Word. Everything the Christian needs for a life of faith and holiness is found in God's Word. That's why so frequently you find these testimonies. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And in fact, when you go to the end of the book of Revelation, which is not only the end of that book, but the end of the Bible, it gives severe warnings against any who would add to or take from His Word. Why? Because it's this Word and this Word alone which is the divinely authorized guide for the whole of the Christian life. Where does this leave us then? well, Brethren, when you and I are converted, we have, as it were, A new world opened unto us of life. And it may become easy for us to presume, well, this is just going to be a natural experience and so on. We're just going to sort of grow. But really, what we need to see is once converted, it's then that we have to be most diligent to search out the scriptures. It's not that we're converted and then we sort of slough off and become casual and indifferent. No, once converted, we say this is God's Word. Paul was writing to a minister of the Gospel. And he was exhorting a minister of the Gospel to give himself diligently to the ministry of the Word. And if that's true of a minister of the Gospel, surely it's true of those to whom he would minister. That the Word of God would be central in their lives. It ought to be a grand exposure whenever people turn away from the Bible to lead professed Christians, professed churches of whatever denomination in a way that is contrary to the Bible. Where are they being led? They're not being led to the truth. They're being led to error. Brethren, this guide is the guide for the Christian. This is important because your conscience is not your guide. Your conscience can be misinformed. Your conscience needs to be informed by this Word. So it's not conscience, Bible, and then others. It's Bible conscience. Our conscience has to be brought under and informed by God's Word. It's not grandfather, and ancient church tradition and other such things, it's the Bible is central. Whatever differences we have with Billy Graham, he was right when he was ridiculed for, as he was accused to do, if you go forward, you'll set the church back a thousand years. He said, oh, I hope far better to set the church back 2,000 years to the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. When John Knox was in Frankfurt exiled with uh, the Marian uh, persecuted church, he was contending for the purity of worship according to God's Word. And the Anglicans then came and said, this church will have the the face of an English church. And Knox said, would it not be better that this church has the face of a Christian church? the church is not to be governed by tradition. The church is not to be governed by this liturgy or that ancient liturgy. And it's astounding to us when you hear people say, oh, and they're giddy with joy and say, we've discovered a 4th century liturgy that had all of these adornments and activities. And we say, who cares? Because we have the Bible, which is the Word of God, which is sufficient for every good work. Paul doesn't say, it's sufficient for most things apart from the way we're to worship Him. For that, you'll have to go to the 3rd and 4th century, to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and all of their pretended ancient liturgy and so on, and then you'll know how to worship God. The Bible is sufficient for everything the church needs, such that if it is contrary to or an addition of, we have no hesitation in setting it aside. Why? Because the Scriptures are sufficient. But brethren, this is also true of private and personal living. The Bible is sufficient to fortify you against temptation. It's helpful. We don't deny it. It's helpful to read great books. There are several books that every Christian should read who knows English. But brethren, they're only helpful insofar as they open to us God's Word. This is where their true power is found. So you think of a book like Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Why is that so powerful for us? Because he's so clear in opening the Scriptures' teaching on the way of putting sin to death by God's grace. That's why it's helpful. It's not because it's from John Owen. It's not because it's been republished this many times or it's published by the Banner of Truth. It's because it is saturated with scriptural insight into the way of putting to death your sins by grace. That's where the standards of help are found. As the Word of God is opened, that's where you must be driven to the Word of God. Does this not explain why people once converted take up God's Word? And yet, you can set up the most plain clear instruction to an unconverted person, and the Bible sits on the bedstand with dust collecting for weeks. And you ask them, what have you read lately? Ah, well, you know, uh, I listened to a verse the other day. You say, okay, well, that's something I suppose. But where is the intake of God's Word? Because as we'll see, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, whereas this is our guide the Spirit that has inspired the Word now resides in the Christian who's converted, which then desires to bring in that Word into their life. So this, the guide for the Christian, is then, as by the Spirit inhabits us, made to be that which the Christian embraces. So here's something to conclude with. You can actually examine yourselves with this. And you can ask yourself, Is it actually the case with me that the Bible is my guide? Now, I'm not asking, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I'm not asking, do you think the Bible is important? I'm not asking, do you believe that the Bible should be your guide? The simple question is this. Is the Bible actually your guide? Is it guiding your thoughts? Is it guiding your life? Is it Moreover, guiding you to Christ. Is it guiding you in the way of living? You see, that the Bible is the guide of the converted then leads us to be able to assess ourselves, am I being guided by it? Because if not, it's not a problem with the Bible. It's a testimony of something in me. But if we can say, by God's grace, I'm seeing this word which is ultimate authority and is full with salvation and is sufficient to guide me in all things. It's actually instructing me little by little, oh, I'm not where I should be. But praise God that by His Word, He is directing me. And then we can have this comfort and encouragement to say, God is at work in me, guiding me by His Word, which is indeed a great comfort to the Lord's praise In our good. Oh, brethren, there is no book like the Bible. Some of you are readers. You can read all sorts of books. Make this book your main intake. Whatever else we take in, here is the ultimate saving and sufficient guide for the converted. Would you stand with me for prayer?